This is a Sunday talk by Tom McFarlane titled Beyond Theories, recorded January 11, 2004, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. All the mystics in all the traditions say that the truth or reality that they testify to is beyond theories, beyond the thinking mind. In the Christian tradition, John Scotus Irigina says, the divine is incomprehensible to all reason and intellect. You'll notice he doesn't say, well, maybe if you have a doctorate in theology, you can get your mind right. No, he says, all reason and intellect, no qualifications there. In the Upanishads, it says, he comes to the thought of those who know him beyond thought, not to those who imagine he can be attained by thought. Huang Po, the Chan master, says, this mind is no mind of conceptual thought, and it's completely detached from form. If you students of the way do not rid yourselves of conceptual thought in a flash, even though you strive for eon after eon, you will never accomplish it. Longchenpa, the Tibetan master, says, the real meaning of the nature of mind is freedom from concepts and expressions, so it won't be understood by conceptual tenets and expressions. And the Sufi mystical philosopher Ibn Arabi says, He who seeks to know reality by theoretical speculation is flogging a dead horse. Now, of course, if you're a savvy spiritual seeker, you know all of this, and you've heard this teaching over and over a hundred times. But still, probably, there's this lingering idea of, well, there's this thing called enlightenment, and maybe I can get to it, and there's some idea you have about how that might happen. Or you walk around the world and you just take things for granted as being out there and existing and so on. And so you might know this intellectually, but actually having it transform your experience is quite a different matter. These kind of veils of theories and our ways of interpreting our experience are shared by all of us. So how do we get beyond these theories? If that's the real problem is that we're stuck in all these theories, how do we do it? Well, it's kind of similar to how we get beyond suffering. Our whole life we try and escape suffering, we try and push it away and avoid it, and we have all these strategies for trying to get away from it. And the mystics say, no, you have to actually look at it, and look into the suffering and see what the root of it is. And that's how you get free from suffering. And similar, Jesus says, well, uh, love your enemies. Don't try and get away from them. You try and love them, and that's the way you overcome hatred. And so similarly, if we have ignorance, we inquire into the ignorance. We don't try and like push it aside and grasp after some elusive knowledge. But we inquire into our ignorance. And so similarly, if theories are our obstacle, then the way to get beyond that is to inquire into theories. What are they? How do they work? How do they trip us up? What are the traps we fall into with theories? So what is a theory? Well, in the broadest sense, it's some way of interpreting our experience, some way of making sense of what's going on. So, for example, let's say we're in this room and we hear a big boom. Sounds like it's coming from outside. It's a big, deep, rolling boom. So you hear the sound, and then the mind starts trying to make a story out of what that is. Where does it come from? What is it? wants to try and label it. 
At first, there's an instant of not knowing what it is, and then the mind jumps in and said, oh, well, that sounds like thunder. So then your mind creates this little theory. And it's just like with one word, and there you've got it. You've got a little theory going there. Uh, you could also think of it as a story. And, of course, if you start being involved as the main character of that story, then it's the story of I, which we all know so well. Uh, you might walk out the door after the talk and see that your car is missing. And then your mind, of course, will start going very quickly then. So, oh, where did it go? Did I, did I park it in the wrong place? Did I forget where I parked it? Did someone steal it? What happened? You know, and so your mind will start trying to come up with some theory very quickly so you know what to do about your missing car. Those are theories that relate to specific experiences that we have moment to moment. And we also have deeper theories about reality in general, like objects exist out there, you know, whatever it is, whether we're looking at a chair or a cloud in the sky or another person or what have you, there's this theory that gets, you might say, applied or used over and over and over in lots of different specific instances, and that's the theory that there's an objective world. And then there's the theory that's kind of related to that, which is that, well, I'm not dreaming right now. This is waking experience where things out there really exist, as opposed to a dream where, uh, at least if you're lucid anyway, you recognize that things don't really exist out there. And so we have these different theories about our experience. You can think of it, as I said, uh, as a story. You can think of it as a game. It's sort of a game you play. There are rules about how things work, how they relate to each other, what the outcome should be, what to expect to happen, and all of these things kind of come together. This is how I'm going to be using the word theory. It's not just limited to this idea of a scientific theory, although we'll be uh, using some scientific theories as examples. Now, although all the mystics say that we have to get beyond theories, we wouldn't want to be without them either. Obviously, you couldn't get around in your day-to-day -day life very effectively without any kind of theory of what's going on or how things are related to each other mm -hmm. and so on. Nevertheless, we should try to be aware that these theories permeate our experience, that we're taking these ideas of how things exist and are related to each other for granted over and over throughout our lives. And so this is what meditation tries to uh, help us be aware of. So if you're doing a meditation on the breath, you see your mind being distracted from the breath, and that helps you to become aware of these thoughts and ideas about what things are. You hear a noise during the meditation, and you see the thought arise that tries to explain it. So we become more aware of how our mind constructs these theories. Now, it can be helpful also to, in addition to meditation, to reflect a little more on the different specific ways that theories trip us up, the different traps we fall into. And one way to put this into focus is to look at scientific theories as an example, and they'll help us understand our day-to-day -day theories a little bit better. Scientific theories are very specialized, they're very focused, and they're very precise and explicit, and so they're kind of a good uh, way to start to study what happens with our theories and help us become aware of our own theories in our day-to-day -day experience. And in science, there's a basic distinction that's made between theories and facts. So the idea is you have a collection of facts, observations, what have you, and then you think up some theory to understand those, to understand how they're related, where they come from, 
and so on. So in the example earlier, there's this fact of this roaring sound, and your theory might be, oh, well, that was thunder. So that would be a, a simple example from direct experience. A more scientific example might be the fact or the collection of facts that you go outside and you see the sun uh, in the morning over in the east, and then later on you see it higher in the sky, and then uh, near the end of the day you see it over in the west, and those are just the raw facts. And then we create a theory about that, and most of us probably believe the theory that these facts are explained by the rotation of the earth. So the earth is rotating and the sun's out there and it appears to move across the sky because the earth is spinning. And that's our theory. There can be other theories. For example, we see a rainbow in the sky and there are all these pretty colors and we have a theory that explains that. Well, the sun is shining and it hits the raindrops and the, the white light from the sun refracts through each little raindrop and splits it up like a prism, and we see this beautiful array of colors then. And there's a whole theory in science about exactly how that happens and everything. And so that theory explains to us, first of all, the appearance, why it's there when it's raining and the sun is shining at the same time and all of this, and it makes sense of the whole experience for us. There's also the scientific theory of why when you drop an object, it falls down to the floor. We call it gravity. And there's this whole theory about exactly how that works and why things fall at specific speeds and, and so on and so forth, which is different from just the fact that things fall. So what's the problem with theories? Well, as was mentioned before my talk, as Joel said, the problem with theories is that we confuse them with reality. At least that's the biggest problem. <laughs> and we forget that these are just acts of the imagination, that we start with these facts, and then we imagine this whole explanation for them. And then we forget that we've done that, and we think that that's just the reality. And this is often uh, alluded to in spiritual traditions, especially in the East, where they talk about the rope and the snake, where the fact is that there's just a rope on the ground but we glance at it and the mind kind of projects the theory that there's really a snake there. And then we think that that's the reality until we actually look closely and we see that, well, really it's a rope. And so that process of seeing what's really there can be understood as making a distinction between the facts and the theory. So, oh, well, the fact actually is that there's just a rope there and the idea of a snake was just my theory and I confused that with reality. And of course this leads to suffering when we make this confusion because reality doesn't always conform to our theories. Our theories are to a certain extent arbitrary. We can dream up all sorts of explanations for things that doesn't mean they're necessarily right or that reality is going to conform to them. We can expect all sorts of things to happen and, and then they never happen and we're disappointed. And so to the extent that we think that our theory is going to or is real, we'll be disappointed when we find out that it isn't. So uh, that's going to lead to suffering. We can see some extreme examples of this in our lives. Uh, if you or someone you know believes that everyone's out to get you, um, this is a kind of theory we have that uh, helps us interpret everyone's behavior. 
And we think that, oh, well, you know, she's doing that because she's out to get me and she has this hidden agenda. And needless to say, that kind of delusional paranoia or whatever the technical term is for it uh, could cause you a lot of suffering. There's also the scientific theory or the metaphysical theory that's often confused with science, which is that everything's made of matter ultimately, and that's all there is in the universe. And that's a kind of theory we have about everything. And it leads in, in an indirect kind of way to a lot of suffering as well. For example, if we're all just biological robots, then if you're having some kind of mental suffering, well, then that's basically some problem with your brain, some either neurological imbalance or chemical imbalance or whatever you want to call it. And so you need to take drugs to fix that because a material problem requires a material solution. So it sort of wipes out or ignores any possibility that there might be an inner capacity for transforming ourselves from within. And uh, to the extent that there actually is such a capacity, we'll be ignoring this whole aspect of reality that might provide a real solution to a lot of our suffering. So let's look at some very specific ways that theories can trip us up. One is that there's this idea that there can be a complete theory of everything. We hear about this in science a lot, where they're going to finally get the theory of everything. Lately, they think this is going to be super strings, and it's all very exciting. I love that stuff. Um, but I think they're exaggerating a little bit when they say it's going to be a theory of everything. It's a bit of hubris to think that we've got the whole story, it's all figured out, it's going to leave nothing out, and there's really nothing more to know beyond what is in this nice theory that we love. This doesn't just happen in physics, though. It can happen in spirituality as well. We have some nice theory about how uh, reality is, all the different levels of reality and the different levels of spiritual experience and all the different doctrines and a our pet theory, and we latch onto that, and we think, well, this is the way it is, and that's going to explain everything. If someone else has a different way of looking at things, well, that gets fit into our theory, and we interpret everything through that. This is an all-encompassing theory that we have, and everything gets fit into that, and nothing is left out. And it also happens in very specific levels. Let's say we know someone, and we think we have them all figured out think, well, basically, I, I really know all there is to know about this person. There's really no mystery here. I have it all figured out. It's a nice package in my mind about who they are and what they do and why they do things, and that's sort of the end of the story. And, of course, we'll be missing a lot if that's our attitude. There's a way you can understand this problem in terms of this diagram I've written where we have a body of facts leading to a theory. There's an oval here that indicates the theory. Well, there's the whole chalkboard that's outside of that. And that's kind of the reality that's outside of your theory. The reality is infinite, and your theory, whatever it is, it's some definite thing, and it circumscribes some definite idea of how things are, and so it's limited. And all of reality is outside of that. So no matter what your theory is, there's going to be something beyond it. And as the mystics say, reality is ineffable, because whatever idea we have of it, well, the reality will always transcend that, no matter what our idea is. And so it's, it's ultimately ineffable. And even in mathematics, you might think, well, something like the numbers, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 
those are so simple, you know, we should be able to have a complete theory of numbers. And the mathematicians tried to do this. They tried to find a set of axioms that would explain how the numbers work. Well, a mathematician named Rodell came along, and he proved that it's always impossible. You can come up with any set of axioms that will explain the natural numbers, and you'll always have uh, truths about the numbers that the axioms can never prove. So it's always going to be incomplete. It was called his theorem of incompleteness about the natural numbers. So even in pure mathematics, where you'd think you could wrap everything up into a nice little package, you also have this happening. So another way that theories can be a problem for us is similar to the idea that our theory is complete, except it's a little different. It's the idea that we'll get to a final theory. We may acknowledge that our theory might leave some things out, but we might still have this idea that, well, this may only cover a limited part of reality, but I figured this much out, and that's it. That's the end of the story. No more to learn, no more to figure out. And so in physics... The physicists might admit that, well, we don't have it all figured out quite yet, but we will. We'll finally get a final theory, and that'll be the end of the story, and there'll be nothing more to learn. And it's kind of humorous to look back on the history of science, and you see that this has actually happened at various stages in the past where people thought they had it all figured out. And then, you know, along comes Einstein or something and pulls the rug out from under the whole thing. It's happened numerous times with even before modern science, we had Aristotle and his physics and the whole Ptolemaic vision of the cosmos where the Earth was sitting at rest in the center of the universe and all the planets and sun were moving. And that was basically considered the final theory about physics and astronomy for over a thousand years. And then, of course, modern physics came along and Copernicus pulled the rug out from under that and now we have a totally different view. And so what's to make us think that we somehow have arrived at the end, or even will ever arrive at the end? And in terms of this diagram, you can think of this as a question mark outside of the facts here. And the idea here is that with a given set of facts, we can deduce a theory from that, or we can have a theory about those facts that explain them. But there might always be new facts that show up that then throw us into a conundrum about how to explain that. And whenever a new fact comes along that contradicts our current theory, well, then we need a new theory. We have to figure out something new. So these new facts might lead us to some revised theory, theory number two. So, for example, this happened with the shift from the Ptolemaic to the Copernican view of the cosmos, where the Earth was at rest, and then they noticed uh, all of these epicycles and things, and they shift the whole perspective around to where the sun was at rest and the earth was moving. So they shift to a totally different theory. And it was forced by the facts of all these epicycles and how complicated that was. And in our own experience, we can see this happening as well. So, for example, let's go back to this boom that we heard outside, and we think it's thunder. Well, if you look out the window, let's say it's a sunny day. So much for that theory. If it's a sunny day, there can't be thunder. And so you have to throw that theory out. You have some new data, the sun's shining, and there's not a cloud in the sky. So there's a new fact that throws out that theory, pulls the rug out from under it, and you have to come up with some new theory. And so this happens 
all the time, and we have to acknowledge that because the facts are open-ended, there's no end to whatever facts might unfold in the future, our theories are always going to be subject to revision to account for the new facts. Another example would be if you think that you're awake, and then lo and behold, you wake up and you see, oh, well, that was actually a dream. And so you're having another experience now, and it causes you to revise your theory about a prior experience you were having. You had the theory that it was a waking experience, and now you revised your theory, and you say, oh, well, that was actually a dream experience. And, of course, you can wake up again and realize that that also was a dream experience. Theories are always subject to revision for that reason. It could always explain all the facts we know to date, but tomorrow there might be something that just pulls the rug out from under the whole thing. Another way that we can get tripped up by theories is thinking that there's one true theory and that all the others are false. And this is dogmatism. We think there's just one perspective that's right and all the others are wrong. And We may not have found the right one yet, but at least it's out there somewhere. We just need to find it. Or maybe, which is worse, we think we've already found it. And, uh, of course, if you have the right theory, then all the other theories are wrong. And this can be indicated in the diagram by the fact that the same set of facts can lead to two different theories that are actually compatible with the same facts. So you could start with the same experience, the same set of data, the same facts, and you can have two different theories that both equally explain them. So, for example, let's go back to the, uh, the Copernican Revolution. You have one set of facts, the sun rising and setting, and you can explain that by saying the earth is rotating and the sun is at rest. Or you can take that same set of facts and you can explain it by saying, well, actually the sun is moving and the earth is at rest. Either way, it will explain the facts. Now you might start arguing, well, now we know that actually the one theory is right and the other one's wrong. Well, actually, Einstein says that neither one of those theories is ultimately true. One of them might be more convenient, but in the end, the, the essence of his theory of relativity is that there is no preferred reference frame in nature. There's no preferred perspective. You can't say one thing is at rest in any sort of absolute sense, and something else is moving in any sort of absolute sense. The laws of nature do not prefer any frame of reference over any other. And so you can just as easily say the sun is at rest as you can say the earth is at rest, or that both of them are moving. They're all equally valid perspectives on the world. The reason we choose to have the sun at rest is that it, it's often more convenient for us to look at things that way, but there's nothing in nature or the laws themselves that prefer that point of view. So it's not true in any kind of absolute sense. And of course, the other way we can do this is between religions. Different religions arise from religious experience and people might tend to say, well, one is right and the other is wrong. And that, of course, leads to problems as well. It happens in the political arena where uh, there are liberal perspectives and there are conservative perspectives, and we might tend to think, well, one of them's right and the other one's wrong, and that's falling into the trap as well. And really, you could take this to be the case for any two opposites that you might think of. If you 
find yourself thinking that one of them is somehow absolutely true and the other one is false, then you've slipped into this confusion about the nature of theories, that ultimately neither one is true nor false. And on an even more subtle level, there's another trap that is related to this distinction between facts and theory. We think of the facts as kind of pure data. It's this raw information. It's purely given to us, and there's no ambiguity about it. You might say the facts are objective. The theories, okay, we can disagree about how to explain them, and we can revise our theories, but the facts themselves are just there. They're given to us. Well, in fact, if you look a little bit more closely at this, you see that even the very facts themselves require interpretation that presupposes a theory. So I can indicate this by drawing a line from the theory back to the facts. But the theory actually feeds into the facts as well. So what are some examples of this? Well, if you know this idea or have experienced psychological projection, this is kind of how that works, where you have some theory about reality, about another person, for example. Let's say you're infatuated with someone. That acts as kind of a filter on your actual experience of what the facts are. This was similar to this idea of uh, everyone's out to get me. If that's what your theory is, then the very facts that appear to you will be colored by that theory. And so you'll see things as facts that other people won't see as facts. And those will arise and seem to validate the very theory that you're using to arrive at the facts. And so that's the circularity of that happening. And this happens also with prejudices about people and about foods. You know, we have this idea that certain foods are good and bad, and we taste it, and that's just the fact of the matter, is that it tastes bad, when in fact it's a, it's a kind of theory we have about the experience. And even scientific facts, this is sometimes hard to swallow, but let's take the fact, for example, that the Earth is moving around the sun at nine miles per second. A lot of people would admit that, well, that's just a fact. Well, as we just discussed, these different theories, whether the sun is at rest or the earth is at rest, neither one is ultimately true. And so the so-called fact that the earth is moving at a certain speed around the sun already presupposes a whole theory about what is at rest and what is at motion, what is in motion and all of this. And so implicit in these so-called facts are these theories. Another example would be the fact that water freezes at 32 degrees. This presupposes an idea about temperature. It presupposes ideas about what water is. Well, let's say your idea of water isn't very precise. Well, if it includes the possibility that there might be salt mixed in it, well, then suddenly the fact isn't true. And so there are all these presuppositions about the definition of water, the definition of temperature, and all these sorts of things have to be taken for granted in order to have that fact be meaningful at all. And so whenever we state or believe that we've experienced some fact, then we should try to be aware that, in, in fact, these presuppose theories and ideas that ultimately don't have any sort of absolute validity. If you've grasped any of what I've said, you might start to feel like 
well, what can I rely on as being true or certain? And that's good. (laughs) Because in the end, the only thing that that is absolutely pure about our experience is just the, the raw fact of awareness itself. And the moment you start to have some experience that includes some sort of idea about what it is that you could put into words, you're already interpreting things. And so to be aware of that as it's happening is to start to get the point of this trap that we've fallen about these so-called facts of experience. So the main points, the main pitfalls of theories, or some of the main pitfalls, is this idea that a theory can capture everything. There's this idea that a theory will somehow someday be final. There's this idea that there's one true theory as opposed to other theories. And there's this idea that uh, ultimately the theories are separate from the facts. This idea that there are these pure facts and that the theories are different from them, when in fact they're mutually implicating each other. Now, although theories have all these pitfalls, I don't want you to leave here thinking, well, just ignore all theories, because theories do have value. Even though they have all these limitations, they have practical value, So like I said at the beginning, you wouldn't want to be without theories. You couldn't cope in the world. The trap is that we get sucked into thinking that they're final, that they're complete, and so on. And these theories and ways of interpreting the world can be a lot of fun, too. If you've ever spent any time with a two-year-old, you know that they love to just dream up imaginary things and You know, they have little stuffed animals, they like to talk to each other, and all sorts of things like this. They create all these imaginary worlds and play in them and uh, have a marvelous time. And, of course, as grown-ups, we do this as well. We play games and sports. You know, you're in a tennis match where you draw these arbitrary lines and you have all these rules and you construct this whole kind of reality and you hit this ball back and forth and hopefully you have a lot of fun if you don't take it too seriously. And theories can have a spiritual value as well in terms of giving us a context for doing spiritual practice. In the ideal case, just as the facts and the theory are ultimately not not separate from each other, in the ideal case, in both spirituality and science, the theory and the practice feed into each other in such a way that they kind of undo each other so that the theory helps us look at our experience in a deeper way, and then the experience helps loosen up our theories and undermine them and open them up. That brings us then to a deeper level that then lets us look deeper into our experience, and the whole thing feeds back on itself in a way that is expansive and revealing deeper and deeper things. Whereas if we cling on to a theory, then that whole cycle is going to be kind of frozen, and there won't be that circulation anymore. So how do we, what kind of attitude or what can we do to help prevent this kind of blockage from happening and to keep this feedback going in a way that that is opening up for us? Well, one that I mentioned earlier is meditation, trying to become aware of these ideas of how we interpret our experience as it's happening in meditation. So we're focusing on our meditation object, a distraction arises and we see how the mind comes in and interprets it and gives a theory to it. And the more we're aware of that, the more we can see it for what it is and not get caught up into thinking it's reality. 
And then when we're listening to or contemplating spiritual teachings, we can also try to be open to a dimension of what's being said that's beyond the, the limited definitions of words. So, for example, let's say you're, you're reading a spiritual teaching and it's talking about God or the self or gnosis or enlightenment or something. Rather than having some fixed idea about what that means, if there can be a more of a relaxed attitude about its possibilities, then that will tend to keep the cycle going between experience and theory so that it allows this deepening to take place. Dr. Wolf gives us some pointers to help us in this. He was a mystical philosopher, and so he was especially concerned with this relationship between ideas and experience and how ideas can open us up to deeper experience rather than being a barrier to deeper experience. And he says, when reading mystical writers, the reading should be done without strained effort in the intellectual sense. The reader should let a sort of current flow into and through him and not feel troubled as to whether he has understood anything or not at the time. He may feel or deeply cognize something, though he may be unable to say what it is. He will return to the same fount again and again, and presently, from out of inner meaning, understanding will begin to blossom in him. He will enter into communion on the level of a new kind of language. So it's more like poetry or music or art, where there's more of a relaxed attitude towards allowing it to enter us, rather than trying to grasp on, well, what does that mean? What does this mean? How does that and try and put it into a conceptual box? He also gives us the following advice on our attitude. He says, the step from symbol to that which is symbolized, though this does afford a peculiarly exacting demand on acuity of thought, yet requires much more. Here, feeling, in the best sense, must fuse with the thought. Thus the thinker must learn also to feel his thought, so that in the highest degree he thinks devotedly. The thinker arrives by surrendering himself to truth. Then truth possesses him, not he truth. So this kind of attitude will help the theories be not obstacles to the path, but help them open us up to dimensions beyond the theories. And so hopefully this is giving you a little sense of the limitations of theories, how they can be an obstacle, as well as how they can be of service on the path and actually help open us up to what is beyond theories. I found a, a interesting little exercise to sort of help feel what I was reading instead of stay focused and stuck in my head with it. So when I'm reading something, as I'm reading, I'm kind of pulling my energy away from thinking what I'm reading and focus more on feeling what I'm reading. I'm both engaging my mind, but it's sort of moving back and forth in between um, feeling the information. Mm -hmm. It's a real sort of physical kind of experience. It's very different from just focusing on my head. That's interesting. You just reminded me of something that Einstein once said. Someone was talking to him about his thought processes and how mm -hmm. he came up with these amazing theories and 
and he was describing his thought as uh, a kind of a tactile experience, mm-hmm. almost, that he was mm-hmm. like feeling his thought, and it was uh, as much uh, a physical experience as a mental experience. Mm-hmm. I really appreciated your talk today. It helped me not get all excited about my spiritual experiences. I've been so quick always to go into trying to explain it because it's got to make sense somehow. I like that there's so much mystery, and that's what I got out of your talk, is that it's okay. It's mystery on both sides. Mm-hmm. It's mystery on the so-called back side and the theory side that no matter what, we're not going to have it figured out, so okay. That brings up an important consequence of this, is that because we have these different theories that are compatible with the same facts and all of that. On the one hand, it could be very disorienting, and well, which one do I choose if none of them are absolutely right or anything? Well, the beauty of that is that you're free to choose whatever is most skillful or, or beneficial at the time. And so, you know, if your car breaks down, you know, certain perspectives on that will be more useful than others. And that perspective won't be as useful if something else happens in your life. And so um, we're free to pick up and drop and use these different perspectives and change perspectives as as needed. And we're not like locked into one way of looking at everything. Mm -hmm. I can't help thinking that, I mean, you're talking about facts and theories out there. And it makes makes me wonder, well, what about us? I mean, aren't we just a walking theory as well? I mean, it's like we're just theories interpreting theories. I mean, we think we know who we are, but really it's just a theory as well. You know, the me, I mean, that is also a right. A theory. Yeah, it's one of the most... It's the grand the, theory. Yeah, the grand, uh, not unified theory, but the grand <laughs> divisatory theory uh, is the theory I have about my own mind, right. that, that it's something that's self-contained over here and then that there's the rest of the world and mm-hmm. its attempt to understand the rest of the world. Savina? The difficulty that I have, there's a pitfall in this approach, which can be an anything goes, therefore nothing's important kind of an approach. Well, you can sum this up in a nice paradox, mm-hmm. and that is to say, well, if you say all theories are relative, is that absolutely true or only relatively true? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anybody who says, well, you know, there's no point in talking about this because every all it's all relative, they're making a, a very dog, they're taking a very dogmatic stance. Wesley, I think what comes up for me in that connection is. Uh, that compassion is not a theory. Compassion is what you is what I what I think and what I partially experience is that that the emptier I get, the more compassion that there's there for other people. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing theoretical about it. I mean it may it may it may use theories to support the way it goes about its business in the world, but it's but it's showing up is just as uh, raw as any other bit of raw experience. Mm-hmm. It's like speaking of compassion, or something like that, that we are filters. And so, 
so that we, we experience something as compassion in itself is, is a kind of theory. Well, insofar as we're experiencing something as something... Mm-hmm. Then, as we interpret it as yeah. compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there can be uh, expression as long as you're not confused about the fact that it's just a theory. There's no problem with it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if there's what you call filtering going on or a theoretical interpretation going on, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, you know, to have the the most skillful, compassionate response, you know, requires some sort of, you know, way to understand what's happening. And if there's detachment from all the different theories, there's the capacity to for whatever theory is most appropriate and beneficial to spontaneously arise and be of service. So, you know, there are no theories whatsoever anywhere at any time arising, you know, we'd just be in deep sleep. There'd be no interpretation of any kind of phenomena or things happening, there'd be no show. So... No mystic has ever said, stop thinking it, and often our minds are so dualistic. We hear something like this, well, okay, it's just all theory, it's just all imaginary, and then we read it as, well, then we shouldn't be doing it. It's just not to be fooled by it. That's the only question here. It's not to not do it, you know, but just don't be fooled by it. And and if you... If you know what you're doing, then it's great. If you don't know what you're doing, you're going to get hurt. I mean, this comes down to like playing with fire. Children, fire is wonderful. If the child does not play with fire, they're going to burn themselves. If they know how to play with fire, then they can use fire for, you know, beneficial uh, things. So it's just a question of skill, but we're never going to get any skill unless we look at these things and examine them. That's what Tom said in the beginning. And what is really going on here and be willing to face that even if it means letting go of our identity that's wrapped up in it, or, you know, whatever. It's, it's the truth will make you free. That's basically what it comes down to. Is, uh, despite all of what's been said here today, uh, is there anything that can be known absolutely and without a doubt and uh, has uh, some absolute truth value? Or are you going to leave us all just hanging here? Uh, <laughs> Why don't you investigate? It's a piece of homework. Come back and tell us if you've never found anything. Well, as soon as I'm enlightened, I'll explain it all. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Unfortunately, it's not that simple. You'll be here forever trying to explain it all. (laughs) Joel gave a great talk that's related to this question about this teaching that truth is that which cannot be denied. And so you might want to check out that talk. I think it relates to your question. But is that truth beyond all theory? Well, that's the big question, isn't it? That's always what trips us up. No, I'm serious. You look and see. No, absolutely. Look, watch your mind. Watch your mind, what it's doing. It's... I'm, I'm not trying to discourage no, no, you. I'm, I'm just saying, watch your mind. I mean, it's, sure, it's, I'm trying to make another theory. It's a no. Well, I mean, it can be a, a, a very valid spiritual path. That's the ultimate Janana path: is to go look for that absolute truth. I mean, take it. Well, absolute, isn't isn't faith based on the idea that there is some 
Well, it depends what you mean by faith. Well, yes. uh, if there's naive faith that's based on, well, of course, there's some truth. Yeah, and, fairy tale. I, yeah, but then, the, but faith is uh, the way mystics use it. It's dynamic. You have to follow it. You have to say, you have to go find it. A great talk was uh, by this Sheikh uh, Tijani in the Quran. He's a Sufi. In the Quran, there's something about everything you do, you should do it as though God were looking at you, as though you. Your Lord were with you, or something like that. I'm not sure exact wording. So he said, "Okay." He took this seriously. Is this in the Quran? So he's going to go. Who is his Lord? I mean, how can he behave this way? How can he act this way if he doesn't know who God is? And that became the basis of his whole search. So, is there an absolute truth? It's just another way of saying this. So, I mean, that's one way to go about it. Go exhaust it. Follow it until the end. But you don't ask anybody. Uh, or don't even be satisfied with anybody else's answer. I mean, what good's it to ask anybody? It'll just be somebody else's answer. Go follow it until you know. You will find the answer. I will tell you this. You will be. I won't say you will find the answer. I will say it is possible to be satisfied. That that question no longer torments you. Yeah, I guess what I was concerned about is that you might be discouraging people if everything's theoretical, then what's the point? Uh, there is no point. Well, not, not, you know, what is the point? The, the one thing that isn't theoretical is that out of which all theories arise. So go find that. Yeah. Now, it's ultimately, that's why it's called mysticism. And so, I mean, if we try to express it, it's paradoxical, so the mind won't be satisfied with that. And ultimately, there is no way, I mean to avoid the fact that it's always going to be mysterious to the thinking mind. But that doesn't mean that there can't be some other resolution beyond the thinking mind. That's the title of this talk, Beyond Theories. Go Beyond Theories. And this all mystics testify to. That these theories are rooted, or these questions, let me put that, are rooted in, uh, in a deep, true concern. And that there is a kind of answer. It's not an answer, though, that you think you're going to get. It's a different kind of answer, and that cannot be expressed. But the the your thirst to know the truth, as Rumi says, is a message from the water that I exist. So keep looking, oh man of dry lips. <laughs> keep looking. 